You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, together this morning, and we're continuing in our series through Joshua chapter 7. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, you can open up to Joshua chapter 7. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning. Uh, but before we read that, I just want us to think um, briefly about why we read it. Right? Uh, maybe a personal question. Why do you read the Bible? Why, or even why are you here this morning? <laughs> Not in a rude way. But, but why, why? I'm glad you're here. But why are we here uh, for maybe a more existential way? Why, why, what am I getting out of this? Right? And, and when we come to Scripture, and particularly this passage this morning is going to challenge us, I think. Or at least it's going to challenge some of our sensibilities about what's right and wrong and what's fair and who God is. When we come to a passage like this, I think we need to first pause and ask, why am I reading this? Because it's going to tell us something comforting. It's going to tell us something challenging. It's going to tell us something about God's character and point us to Christ. But if I'm only reading this for my immediate like feel-good satisfaction, confirm the God I have in my head kind of motives, then I'm going to be sorely disappointed. When we come to God's word with a picture of not who is the God I've created in my head, but how can I encounter the real God as he has revealed himself in scripture, when that's our posture, I think we'll hear something really amazing uh, from this passage. So uh, instead of going reading the whole thing and talking about it, I'm going to read through it bit by bit and talk about it. So I'm going to pray, though, before we do that. Uh, Dear Lord, Father God, help us to humble ourselves, help me to humble myself, to come before you this morning, not with a picture uh, in my head of what you should be like, but ready to learn about you and worship you as you reveal yourself to us uh, for who you actually are. Uh, It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. So we're continuing through Joshua. If you've been with us, they've made it into the promised land. They've captured Jericho. They've walked around the cities and the walls fell tumbling down. And now they're on to another wonderful military victory. It's an exciting time to be alive as an Israelite. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1. Let's just dive right in. I'm going to do it a little bit differently than we normally do. We're going to go through and then I'm going to stop and talk about what happens while we do it because this is how I like to teach on Wednesdays and we're going to try it this morning. So uh, chapter 7, verse 1. They've just conquered Jericho, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. So, so in our first verse, God is already mad. He's messed up. And this was a problem that we had uh, back in the previous passage. If you want to turn back to chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, God had told them uh, very clearly, the city and all that's in it is going to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. He'd told them this very clearly, that all the stuff in Jericho was not theirs. They're going to have plenty of stuff to take later on. They're going to have a whole land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to have, everybody's going to have their own vineyard and their own farm for every every single family. And yet none of the spoils of Jericho are to be theirs. 
And yet we're told already in verse 1 of our chapter that Achan has messed up. Something has gone wrong. So verse 2, Joshua continues. Uh, he doesn't know this, though. Joshua doesn't know that Achan has done something wrong. And so from Joshua's perspective, the conquest of Canaan continues. So he sends some guys up to Ai. This is a little town up in the mountains. Uh, Jericho's down on the plains, and this is up in the hills. So they're headed up, you know, into the Catalina foothills. They've been down in the valley. And uh, some men go up, and they spied out Ai, verse 3. And they returned to Joshua, and they said to him, you, know, you don't have to have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they, the, the men of Ai, are few. So they look around. This is like very interesting because it's different than all the other spy reports we have in the book of Joshua. The spies are actually positive, and they say, like, we got this. There's nobody up there. Just, there's got like a million Israelites. Just send like two or 3,000. You do not need to take all of God's people up into the mountains. So, verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. They ran away. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of the Israelites and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So just to recap, they've just captured Jericho. They've just destroyed Jericho. And now they send, they have this tiny little mountain encampment, probably not more than 100 people that live there. And they've, this is their next big town to capture. And they send 3,000 guys up there. And yet this little tiny town of Canaanites defeats the 3,000 Israelites. And the Israelites come running and screaming back down to the valley. 36 of them have died. And it says their hearts melted and became as water, right? This is like when, uh, you know, this is the first big tragedy that they've had in their attempt to take over the land. Maybe you remember like the first time you really, really got hurt, like you broke an arm or something, or the first big tragedy in your life, you know, that middle school heartbreak, or, uh, or more seriously, maybe like the, like the first loss of a loved one. Those first moments in life that really shake you to say like, I'm not actually invincible. Like, goodness, I'm mortal. This is their first big moment where they're like, wait, what if we don't win? Like they're in the middle of a war taking over the promised land and their hearts melt and they say like, dang it. Like what if we do not win this war? Like what if we're going to just be chased back out of here? And so their hearts melt. They're terrified. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening long time. Uh, he and the elders of Israel. So it's not just Joshua. It's all the representative elders, the heads of each of these 12 tribes. And they put dust on their heads. This is classic Old Testament grieving. Tearing of clothes, dust on the head, ashes, gnashing of teeth. Verse 7, and Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. <laughs> he says, God, why did you even bring me here in the first place? This is all of us, right, at some point when we run into adversity in our own lives. We say, God, why on earth have you put me in this situation if you just knew I was going to fail? Like, wouldn't it have been better if you just left me where you found me? Like, if I was just left on my own. And, and Joshua 
which is amazing that he's so vulnerable before the Lord, by the way, just as a side note. But he is saying, what? It, could you not have just left us in the wilderness? That even would have been better than this. Now you've brought us into Canaan and you're going to let us die? Verse 8, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? I'm from the South. There's no worse insult in the South than being called a coward, I think. Uh, and he says, we've become cowards. There's the Israel has turned their backs and run. We've run from our enemies. Verse 9, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will, are going to hear of it. And they're going to surround us and they're going to cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Joshua is having a meltdown. <laughs> Joshua is having a complete crisis of faith. I take comfort in this because he's Joshua. He has a whole book named after him. And yet uh, we're allowed to maybe have some freedom to, to question God in this way, to say, like, what is going on in my life right now? But Joshua is absolutely losing it, right? He says they're going to hear about this. They're going to gain steam. They're going to begin to build momentum and they're going to wipe us out entirely. Like, what are you going to do about this, God? And so he does the right thing. He comes to the Lord uh, in prayer. He comes to the Lord with this complete distress of, and, and remember, the reason he's distressed is because they've lost this improbable battle and 36 of his people have died. Like, there's tragedy in that, too. These are real people. Um, and so he, he speaks to the Lord, and surprisingly, or not surprisingly, the Lord answers in verse 10. Amazing. God talks a lot in this passage. The Lord, Yahweh, all caps, Lord, said to Joshua, verse 10, Get up. <laughs> Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Here's how. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and they've lied and they put them among their own belongings. This was exactly what he told them not to do in the last chapter. He's told them this in the beginning of Joshua. He's told them this back in Deuteronomy. He says, look, they've sinned and there's all the spoil that is part of the Canaanite plunder. And it's been this phrase that we're going to see throughout the whole rest of the book of Joshua about peoples and nations and all kinds of stuff. It's been devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction. And yet they've taken it. And, and he outlines that it's not just that they've taken it, they've stolen and they've lied. And they've mixed it all up with their own stuff. They've taken what was the Lord's and they've said, well, I'm going to have it to be mine as well. I'm going to make it my belongings. So, uh, where were we? They've taken, they've stolen, they've lied, they've mixed it with their own stuff. Uh, they turn their, therefore, the people of Israel, verse 12, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction themselves. I'll be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate, that means make yourself holy. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So the Lord says, there's sin in your midst. You cannot fight in my name. You cannot 
lead uh, my name and, and claim to represent me when there is sin in the congregation, when there is sin in uh, the tribe of Israel. And so you need to make yourselves holy. And tomorrow we're going to find out who did this. <laughs> he tells them they have all night, too. Uh, and this is our first first chance that the, the guy who's done this, Achan, is going to get to come forward. He doesn't. Uh, but they've, he says, consecrate yourselves. That means to make yourself holy. That's, that's only accomplished in the Old Testament or new through God's means and methods. Right? I can never make myself holy by just trying really hard. I can never make myself holy by just reading my Bible a ton. No, I, I can only do that through the Lord's uh, sacrifice of Christ. And in the Old Testament, they can only do that through the, the specific rituals that he's given them. And, and he tells them, right, you know, you can, you can try to fight your enemies, but it's not going to work. Uh, we cannot, this is, there's an application for us here. We cannot effectively serve the Lord while we indulge our own sin. He says, you cannot stand before your enemies while, there are, while there's sin in your midst. For us, we cannot effectively serve the Lord while we continue to indulge our own sin. Right? This takes many and multiple forms. Uh, and we might continue on for a little while. We might continue to it seemingly have some success, and yet we can't uh, serve the Lord in the way He would have us we can't truly live the way he would want us to. Uh, we can't truly rest in his gifts and abundance while we indulge our own sins and desires. This is a constant uh, challenge for us. As one of our great poets, Johnny Cash, has said, uh, you can run on for a long time, uh, but sooner or later God will cut you down. <laughs> Maybe not all the theology of Johnny Cash is worth quoting, but... Uh, anyways, uh, th this idea is true. He says you can't stand before your enemies while there's sin in your midst, Israel. Right? We have a chance personally to continually confess and repent. We actually illustrate that. We show it. We do it every single week. We just did it a couple minutes ago in the middle of our singing. James led us in a call to confession, and after that there was an assurance of pardon. Right? Uh, a reminder every week that I have something, I have multiple things that either I have done or I have not done that I need to bring before the Lord. And we're reminded and we're invited to confess and repent. You know, the, the beautiful thing about sin is that we are so easily rid of it in the Lord. We can confess and we can be assured of our pardon uh, through his grace. That's, that's right at the heart of this. And the guy who's taken this stuff, he gets the chance. He gets all night, actually, to confess, but he doesn't. So verse 14 happens. Uh, in the morning, you, therefore, you shall be brought near by their tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes by, uh, by lot shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. So he's going to line everybody up. He's going to pick by these smaller and smaller units until he knows who's done it. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed, broken, crossed, trespassed the covenant of the Lord, and because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. So he says, I'm going to line you all up, and I'm going to burn the person with fire who has done this. Harsh punishment. Again, why do we read the Bible? to encounter God as he is, not as he is in our heads. So let's, let's see what he does. So verse 16, 
Joshua rose early in the morning, and he brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man. And Zabdi was taken, and he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. So he gets this one specific guy. And you know, this poor guy, Achan, has been standing there all day like, is he really going to pick me? Oh, dang it, he picked Judah. Is he really going to, maybe it's not my family. And then he's like, oh, he got the Zerahites. Dang it, I'm one of those. Like, and he goes down the whole line, and he's just sitting there sweating. Like, Have you ever felt nervous before something? This is what Achan is feeling. So he finally gets up to him, and Joshua, commander of a million Israelites, is standing there before Achan. And he says to him, verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, my son, Joshua's older, remember, because all the other people died in the wilderness. So Joshua's this 40 years older than every other person. And uh, anyway, so my son, give glory to the Lord of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Man, I can still hear my like, parents' voice in this. You know, tell me, you can tell me now what you've done. <laughs> there, there's a real call to repentance here that each of us has to encounter, right? In this story, spoiler, we're Achan more than we are Joshua. And, and when we read this, when I read this, I'm like, dang it. There is a judgment day coming where I stand before the Lord and he says, tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me, right? The Lord knows all of our wrongs. And yet there's grace. Verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua. He does tell him what he's done. He says, truly, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, about five pounds, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with a silver underneath. Achan says, like, I saw some really nice stuff. When we went in there into Jericho after the walls had fallen down, I saw a huge pile of silver. I saw an enormous bar of gold. I saw a really nice cloak that was probably worth a ton of money. All of this together, just as an aside, is worth about the entire lifetime earnings of someone at this point in time. So whatever your added lifetime earnings would be, Tim could probably tell us, financial planner. But uh, whatever your entire lifetime earnings, he sees this all in a pile, and he says, you know what? I'm going to take that. He says, I saw them, and I coveted them, and I took them. You know, th this word covet, it's a really Bible-y word. You know, probably familiar with it. But it, it means to seek or to want what's not ours. When I want something that's not mine. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's the last one. It covers a bunch of other stuff. A lot of them can be summed up in covetousness. A lot of things that aren't explicitly listed could be defined as covetousness. Wanting what's not mine. And he says, I, I saw this pile of stuff and I wanted it for my own. You know, this would have been enough money to change his, his life. This would have been enough money to change... To, to make him a rich man and to make him like probably an elite person in his little tribe. To make him someone people might have looked up to because apparently he's done well for himself. To make him someone who maybe has nice things, but 
probably this is more about status than it is possessions. I mean, there's no like Costco or a mall that Aiken is going to take his shekels of silver to. This is going to instead, like maybe he would use this to purchase more land or uh, build more wealth and esteem and glory for himself and for his family. This is the root of his sin, and that's something that we can all share, right? When we want this same, uh, we want something that's not ours. So what happens? What happens to Achan? He's confessed a bit late after the battle and after the whole night, but he is confessed. So what happens? This is where the passage, for me at least, gets really conflicting, where I have to remind myself I'm reading to find out about God as he is, not God as I would imagine him in my head. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took them, presumably his whole family, maybe they knew as well, because it's buried under the floor of their tent, probably hard for everyone in the family not to know, but regardless, they took them out of the tent, and they brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. Oh, sorry, that them was referencing the, uh, the silver. Um, and Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. So they take everything that's associated with this person, Achan. His sons and his daughters and then every, all of his possessions. They take all of them and what are they going to do with them? They brought them up to the valley of Achor. Uh, this just means the valley of destruction, not a happy place. So they bring them up to the special valley. Verse 25, and Joshua said, why, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and they stoned them with stones. The triple threat. <laughs> Uh, it's maybe not something to laugh at, but they are extremely redundant here, right? They stone them, then they burn them, and then they stone them again. And they raised over him, verse 26, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Man, what an awful monument, like not a happy grave. Pile of rocks over him and his family and all that he had. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day... The name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, or Destruction. So what on earth? What are we supposed to get from this story? Why do we do this to ourselves? Man, I love reading the Bible through a whole book, because you've got to encounter this stuff. Uh, when we run into this, we have to encounter God as he is, God as he reveals himself, and not God as we have falsely sometimes imagined him. So what's wrong with this in the first place, right? The, the main first place sin that goes on is Achan's covetousness. This is what's wrong in the first place. And when we covet what is not ours, we actually undermine the blessings God has given us, right? This is what Achan's doing. When we covet what is not ours, we undermine the blessings God has given to us. Let me illustrate this. My favorite movie, maybe not anymore, but my favorite movie for a long time, It's a Wonderful Life. Not a Christmas movie, but it shows at Christmas. Uh, wonderful movie, all right? George Bailey is uh, this energetic young man, wants to seize the world. Um, he wants to be important and rich and famous, and yet his brother gets all of these things. His brother is the one who gets the 
the Medal of Honor and has the wife and gets to move out of the town and all this sort of stuff. And George Bailey ends up thinking that his life is worthless, that his life is meaningless. And yet at the end of the movie, spoilers, he finds out that it is a wonderful life, that his life is actually important. Uh, he has, in this whole movie, been wanting to be famous. He's been wanting to show the world how important and grandiose he is. He's been wanting to make his name great. And yet he finds out in the end of the movie that although he hasn't achieved any of that in the way that he thought it, he wanted, he is actually the richest man in town, metaphorically speaking. He's the richest man in town in relationships and community. And although he's not become the sort of robber baron he wanted to be, his life is actually wonderful. Um, this is often us. This is often me, at least. I covet, I want what is not mine, and I miss out on the things God's actually given me right now. I want to be someone else, and I miss out on the amazing blessings right here in my life in this moment. I want something else, and I miss on the, the, actually on the calling God's given me right where we are. Right? We want other people's money, sure. But we also want other people's gifts and their ability and their looks and their positions. We want people's uh, age. We want people's weight. We want people's all parts of other people. And we miss actually the talents and gifts we've been given right here and now. And we miss even the material blessings that are so abundant that the Lord has given to each of us. We've all been given something wonderful and yet we want to be somewhere else. And this is right at the heart of Achan's sin right at the heart of his problem, right? He sees and he takes and he covets what is not his. The Lord's told them very clearly back in chapter six, all that's within Jericho, that's devoted to me. And yet they're all gonna, they're gonna get a whole promised land. Like the, the boring part of Joshua uh, that we're gonna get to later, sorry. But the, the part that's not my favorite uh, is the allotment of land. And it was really important for ancient Israel because it was chapters upon chapters of describing the inheritance Achan was going to receive if he could have just but waited. It's chapters upon chapters of here's not just acres of land, but here's whole counties of land. Here's enormous swaths of land of inheritance that God was gonna give him. And yet he got hung up on a couple of bars of silver and gold and a cloak uh, in Jericho. When we covet what is not ours, we undermine, we miss the blessings that God has actually given us. You know, it uses this phrase in here for the stuff that he took, that it was devoted to destruction. Um, this, this idea of devotion, we talked about it a bit last week too. right? It means to, to make yourself fully aligned with God, to say, I'm devoted to you. And when something's devoted to destruction, it is fully God's. And God is really concerned in this passage, in, in all of Scripture, about spiritual purity and holiness and whether or not we're actually devoted to Him and Him alone. And He's told them uh, back in Deuteronomy that actually Canaan is going to be devoted to destruction. You know, one of the big struggles with the book of Joshua is that it seems that He really has it out against the Canaanites. And yet He's told us over and over again why. The Canaanites have sinned, particularly in their sexual immorality, over and over and over again uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've also sinned through child sacrifice, which was very common among their culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so he says, you know, this, this whole area 
of the promised land is being given to you, not because, Israel, you are wonderful, but because they have been devoted to destruction. And, and when they enter into this promised land, he says, you know, you can have all the land, just don't take certain things. It's just like the Garden of Eden, right? You have all the fruit you could want, but leave this one tree free in the middle. And, and this is the same thing, Achan, you can have all the land, you're going to get these blessings, but don't touch the silver and gold in Jericho. And yet he does. Again, this is us. We might need to pause and ask, how am I seeking what is not mine? What are areas of desire in my heart, right? Things that I am seeking after that are not mine to have. Because when I focus solely on those, I can miss actually the wonderful blessings the Lord has given me or has promised to give me. So that, that's why, this is our first point, why is this wrong in the first place? Our other big point for today that I think we see in this passage or a question to answer is why does all of Israel get punished? Why, why do 36 men die? Why do they lose a battle? Like, why does Achan's whole family die? Why does it seem like the whole nation gets punished if it's actually just Achan who takes some stuff, right? This is, this is where this passage maybe starts to seem really unfair, um, right? They lose a battle up at Ai. Joshua has like cried before the Lord and it actually doesn't get resolved in this passage. You'll have to wait till next week uh, to see like what is God going to do about this loss. But why do they all get punished? And why is, why is he angry, right? Verse one, worth reading again. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things because Achan, the son of so-and-so, took some of the devoted stuff. So, but then it says at the end of verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Why does Achan's sin mean that God's angry with the whole nation? This is something that we can really, really struggle with, right? Uh, this idea of collective sin or corporate sin, this idea that I'm somehow responsible, that God can be angry at me for something that someone else did. Like that's particularly challenging to us today. I don't think this actually would have been part of, I don't think the original audience would have at all even thought of that. But as like modern Western Americans, we really struggle with that idea that I might be punished for someone else's actions. Uh, this last week, I got to Bible substitute teach at a Push Ridge. And the first class I taught, they talked a ton during our reading assignment. And so the second class uh, we did the whole reading assignment silently. And uh, the first class misbehaved. The second class got punished for it. Not fair. Not fair. But it worked a whole lot better, right? Maybe you've been on a sports team where everyone had to run for the mistakes of one player, right? Or everyone lost because of the mistakes of one player, right? Sometimes a company will pay enormous uh, like reparations or lawsuits because of what one person has done wrong, right? Um, like the whole of Israel gets punished for this very small thing. Uh, sometimes we often get punished for things that aren't our problem, and yet this is not actually inconsistent with God's character. It's consistent 
with the God of Scripture. And this is where I personally have to be challenged that I'm following the God, God as he reveals himself, right? We struggle with this idea as modern people, like past the Enlightenment. We tend to think of ourselves as my brain and like because I think, therefore I am. And so like how does that relate to another person? (laughs) It doesn't. And yet we're more than our brain. We tend to think of this we tend to struggle with this as Western people, as individualists, like we're not tribal, we're not in an honor-shame culture, and so we tend to really think about me and my freedom and my solidarity. We tend to struggle with this as Americans, right? We're super wealthy, we're super free, and so this is just a really hard concept for us to get, but in Scripture, sin is often, but not always, but often collective. You know, another example of bearing the weight of this true sin in the Walmart parking lot. Uh, when, when we see those people that leave shopping carts in parking spaces, some of you are nodding, yes. Real sin, maybe some of you do it, I don't know. But uh, you know, we bear the weight of other people's mistakes when they leave their shopping carts, so annoying. Uh, anyway, sorry, there's a lot of examples of this in scripture, right? This passage, uh, the, the prophets deal with this collectively They repeatedly call out the whole nation of Israel for problems that are actually just related to maybe the priests or actually just related to the kings or actually just related to certain groups of people. Um, We see this in Acts chapter 2, even in the New Testament. Uh, Peter has this long railing sermon that makes me cringe because he says, like, the Jews did all these problems. And yet he doesn't, he says, you people did all this. And yet like if we were more accurate, maybe, the, it's not all of them. It's just the Pharisees who put Christ to death. And yet he says, all of you are responsible for this. And he actually applies it to us too. All of us are responsible for Christ's death. And yet I wasn't actually there. So am I responsible for it? Right? This is a really hard idea for us to get. It's even in the Ten Commandments. Right? Where there's commandments where it says, this is going to go for you and your children. Exodus 34, when Moses sees God's presence, he says, there's, you're, you're a Lord who keeps steadfast love for thousands. You forgive iniquity and the transgression of sin. But a Lord who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is right in the character of God that God somehow, sometimes, seems to bear guilt on me for things that I personally have not done. And this is, I think, part of why this passage can be a little challenging. Because we see, like, the whole, is, the whole nation of Israel is paying the price for Achan's sin. And maybe even Achan's whole family in particular is paying the price for his sin. And this is really hard for us. And yet this is consistent with God's character, right? And this is consistent in a positive way, too. He does not just punish us for other people's sins. He also forgives us for another person's righteousness, right? Romans 5, if you want to turn there, we're going to be there for a minute or two. It's this amazing chapter where he reminds us that as we were all sinners in Adam. We've all been saved in Christ. Romans 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, not Achan, but Adam, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to men because everybody sinned. So he says just because sin came into the world, then he, he goes on to say there's a positive here as well. Verse 15, but this free gift, grace, it's not like that sin. For if many died through one man's trespass or sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He tells us that we are actually responsible for someone else's sin. <laughs> like, that seems unfair, right? I am actually sinful. I'm born into sin, not because of myself, but because of Adam's sin. Like, what a bummer. Like, I'm born into sin because of Adam. And, and that's the way I'm born. And yet, even more than that, unfairness. We are saved unfairly as well. God's always just. He's not always fair according to our standards. Even more than that unfairness, we are saved unfairly through Christ, right? He says in verse 16, Romans 5, And the free gift, this grace, this salvation, it's not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following that one trespass brought condemnation. But this free gift, this is what we celebrate each week, this free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This, this is an amazing piece of good news for us. It should be. That although I have sinned personally and I'm responsible for sin through Adam, although Israel has sinned personally, I'm sure they have, and they're responsible for sin through Achan, we are also saved, saved not ever by anything we do, but by the person and work of Jesus Christ. As much as this sometimes might seem unfair to us, that's exactly how salvation works. It too is unfair in the same sort of way. It's absolutely just, and yet it, right, I'm never saved because of something awesome I've done. I'm always forgiven because of what Christ has done and how that's been applied or given to me. And hopefully we see that in this passage. We'll see that more as we unfold this free gift that God not only punishes collectively, but he also begins to give us salvation through Christ. Now, there's some things we're not saying by that, right? I'm not saying that the whole world is saved once and for all through Jesus. I'm saying that those who believe in him are saved, right? That those whom he's chosen are saved. Uh, but yet we're also all, just as we've all fallen short in sin, he is offering himself uh, to us all uh, as a free gift through the work of Christ. So what do we see about God in this passage? Achan's sin, a dark passage this morning in Joshua chapter 7, right? How does this passage show us the true God? Maybe, maybe you felt this tension. God as you picture him, maybe like the warm fuzzy God uh, versus God as he really is, right? He shows us that he cares about what's going on in the individual lives of his people, even down to their problems. Like he knows what's inside of Achan's tent. Uh, he cares uh, that they are living the right way. He cares about our hearts. He cares that we long for him instead of coveting our own glory and honor. And he cares about true justice. He cares about true justice, not 
just what we think is fair, but true honor and glory and purity among his people, which he offers us freely through Christ, right? What's, what's wrong is this covetousness. When we miss, when we, when we want what we want, we sometimes just miss or ignore the blessings God given, has given us. And, and we might struggle with the fact that they all get a little bit punished for God's, for, for Achan's problems here. And yet, he offers us all free grace through Christ. This is our hope. Uh, this is our gospel. This is what we believe in, right? This is why we worship, because I'm saved not by my own awesomeness. I'm saved not by my own lack of guilt. I'm saved not by being part of the right group. I'm only saved by Jesus Christ. And that's always uh, unfair in the sense that it's never about what I've done. It's always about what Christ has done for me. All right, if this is you, maybe, maybe you're feeling a little upset <laughs> with this. Uh, I would challenge us all to... to, to Think maybe, maybe what's upsetting here is that God punishes uh, collectively, but then we don't seem to be as upset that he saves sometimes collectively through Christ. I would challenge you to, to let those two reconcile, to, to come to Christ today, right? If we're hidden, if we're hiding our, our sin and our shame, we can bring that to the light before the Lord, and he promises us grace and redemption and forgiveness uh, in him and in his son, Christ, right? Grace is a gift received at another person's expense, and he's promising to give us this gift that we don't have to be like Achan, stoned, burned, stoned. This is all carried out upon Christ, and we can rest in his goodness and his grace. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.